My name is Dick. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Dick. And um, my sobriety date is June the 8th, 1977. Uh, my home group is the Northwest Group in Atlanta. My sponsor is a fellow named John H. Uh, and uh, I got sober in Louisville, Kentucky. I'll tell my story later tonight so you get to know more about me. But I just wanted to first say that I'm very grateful uh, to be here. My life has been saved and changed dramatically by participating in retreats with other men uh, this last almost 28 years. Uh, I found God's will for me in a way that I could use it uh, at a retreat like this. Um, I had some areas of my life and character defects that uh, came crumbling down that I could finally face and deal with uh, because of a retreat like this. And so um, I'm really looking to my experience here with you and... and, and uh, uh, and I believe, I'm one who believes that uh, coincidence is just another way of God remaining anonymous, which means that you're not here by accident, that there's something that is going to happen to you here this weekend. Um, and we'll talk more about what we expect of that weekend. And it can, This is my uh, good friend, Keith. Hi, my name is Keith Lewis. I'm an alcoholic. I'm really pleased to be here. I'm a member of the Living Sober Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Ocala, Florida. My sobriety date is May the 13th, 1973, and my... Sponsor's name is also John, and uh, same sponsor Dick has, as a matter of fact. Um, I am uh, profoundly grateful for the opportunity to be here. And it's true there are no AA police, but if there were, Dan would be the chief. <laughs> I would like to um, tell you that... I am, I am here for you, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. If you want to talk, if you want to do anything, my time here is your time. I'm, uh, uh, I'm in room 213 over in the lodge. If you're listening to this on one of Lee's tapes, I've probably moved out by now. <laughs> but I, uh, I, too, have had my life profoundly changed uh, at retreats, and uh, I used to go on one every three months with my dear, now deceased friend and prayer partner, Mike Way. Uh, he started me on them when I was sober about nine months, and uh, we would go on, many of them were silent retreats, although Mike couldn't keep quiet for two days, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but we uh, spent a lot of time together just discussing God. It's really what retreats, I think, are about. They're about taking a step back and taking a look at our lives and making some decisions based upon principles that will change our lives. When I got sober in Washington, D.C., they used to say, there's an expression they used to use a lot, they'd say, the old man will drink again. So I cannot be the old man. I must become a new man every day. And uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has given me that opportunity. Uh, I'm going to use some of the literature this weekend, and whenever I do, what I'm pulling out is all A. And I, I uh, have my own by, um, uh, uh, but I don't share those at com, uh, because that's my own, my own personal opinion. And 
you can't pick it apart. It doesn't matter what religion or, or where you come from or what your viewpoint is. It's hard to beat the literature. And so everything I read will be from this. So that instead of them that you can find fault with, this is, this, this is from uh, As Bill Sees It, which is a little collection of Bill Wilson's writing. And it's on uh, page 8. It's called A New Life. And it was originally published in The Grapevine uh, in December of 1957. And it's about... Uh, the purpose of this weekend. Is sobriety all that we are to expect of a spiritual awakening? No, sobriety is only a bare beginning. It is only the first gift of the first awakening. If more gifts are to be received, our awakening has to go on. As it does go on, we find that bit by bit we can discard the old life, the one that did not work, for a new life that can and does work under any conditions, whatever. Regardless of worldly success or failure, regardless of pain or joy, regardless of sickness or health or even of death itself, a new life of endless possibilities can be lived if we are willing to continue our awakening through the practice of AA's 12 steps. And <clears throat> what we've set down, if you've got a copy of the agenda uh, here, is a microcosm of what we do in our program in its entirety. And what we wanted to talk about today was why we're here, our surrender, what brought us to that third step. And, in fact, we'd like to end this session with all who will uh, holding hands and sharing the third step prayer. So, uh, and over tonight, I'll share my story. Tomorrow night, Keith shares his story. So you'll know who we are and what God has done with our lives and where we came from. Um, tomorrow morning, after we've discussed surrender today... Uh, once you've surrendered, who do you turn your life over to? Who are you surrendering? We know we talk about God, but you've got to turn it over to something that's visible. And in our case, that's called sponsorship and the people that we follow. And so uh, we'll have a session in the morning called Learning from the Old Timers. Um, I wrote and produced a film called House Full of Miracles, which I donated to Dr. Bob's home, the, the place where A began. And we'll show that tomorrow. It's a short film, 29 minutes. But it talks about how this, how this program started in the beginning and during the process of writing that film, I learned a great deal about how our program did start. And I'll share that with you tomorrow morning. Um, and we can learn a great deal from what the old timers taught us. Um, but we'll talk a little bit about sponsorship as well and how that evolved in the beginning. So we've talked about surrender, and then we'll talk about uh, surrendering to someone, turning our lives over, giving some authority in our lives to another man. And that was something that was very difficult for me to do. Um, and we'll talk about that tomorrow. Then Keith will talk about those things that a sponsor will expect from you, if he's a good sponsor. And that is trusting God and cleaning house. That's what the big book says is our remedy for the spirit. Uh, and the result of that is spiritual awakening. And Keith will talk about all of those tomorrow. So will we, by the end of the day tomorrow, we will have covered our surrender. We'll have covered the steps that it takes to clean out the anger and the fear and to allow us to walk upright and to be comfortable with ourselves as men. And that's what the steps are for. Um, but after uh, I learn how to be comfortable with myself, I'm faced with the problem of dealing with other people in relationships. And the steps don't tell me how to deal with those. The traditions do. And the 12 traditions and the principles behind them are... The 12 traditions and the principles behind them are probably um, uh, the most ignored... Uh, collection of wisdom we've got in Alcoholics Anonymous because we spend a great deal of time trying to get well for me but then we don't know how to have we don't know what to do or where we fit in a relationship 
And so when I share on Sunday morning, we'll talk about those traditions and talk about uh, the wisdom of this program and our relationships. Having done that, we've shared basically all of the wisdom, and we will come back to our real purpose. And the big book talks about our purpose. In fact, the word purpose is mentioned here probably 30 or 40 times. Um, But our real purpose is not just to stay away from a drink. It's to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And how do we do that and what does that mean? And we'll share that. Um, And then finally, on Sunday morning, uh, having surrendered, having walked through this process of house cleaning and turning our lives over to God, having found the ways in which we can deal with other people, having recognized our gifts, um, where do we go from here? And what we're actually going to ask each of you to do Uh, regardless of whether you're in your first day or whether you're in uh, your 30th year, is to actually commit to a plan of action where you will take some steps to become more fit to be useful to God and to the people about you during this coming year. And that means writing down something you're going to tell your sponsor and make a commitment to it. And it may be getting out of the bondage of of, uh, financial debt. It may be uh, trying to focus on learning how to be loving to my wife when I don't know how to do that. It may be just being a good AA member. Or for right now, if you're brand new, it may be just staying away from that drink. But there's some action that you can take that will allow you to come back here next year. My experience is the people that continue to grow and to become more and more useful have big, open, bright, powerful lives, and the people that come here expecting just to get something for themselves, just to stay away from a drink, uh, and that's all they ever have, at some point get bored and go back out. So this that I just read is, is I'll repeat, haven't said, haven't given you what our program is, but it says, is sobriety all that we are to expect of a spiritual awakening? No. Sobriety is only a bare beginning. So it's our hope. Uh, that this weekend is a good and strong beginning for many of you and that will lead to a uh, uh, much more useful life during the coming year. You know, uh, part of being uh, sober, and uh, Bill talks about it in the 12 and 12, is about building character. Uh, If I'm the same husband this time next year, I am this time this year, I've wasted a year in Alcoholics Anonymous. If I'm the same sponsor... If I'm the same father, the same grandfather, the same pigeon, uh, the same in my profession this time next year as I am this time this year, I've wasted a year in Alcoholics Anonymous. If I don't grow character-wise in the next year, I've wasted a year in Alcoholics Anonymous. My old buddy Mike Way used to say the spiritual life is an uphill uh, journey. and If you stand still, you drift backwards. And I found that to be absolutely true. Uh, the old man really will drink again. Um, it's amazing to me. I go to meetings all over the country, as many of you do, and uh, it, it amazes me. So many meetings are the, you know, they'll, they'll read how it works, and then whoever's chairing the meeting will say, anybody here have a problem? You know? And somebody will say, uh, mother had a square nipple, and... Uh, <laughs> Daddy put me on a potty chair backwards, and, uh, you know, 50 untrained psychiatrists will take a shot at that. And, uh, you know, when I came in, I was, I was really fortunate. There was an old man in Washington, D.C. by the name of Buck Doyle. And Buck was, uh, was an old, he was a flying tiger. He flew with Chenault in China. He was a, just an absolutely marvelous man. 
And uh, you, if you were new, you always had a bruise on your chest because he'd always poke you in the chest when he talked to you. <laughs> and he said to me, I, I'm sober about five weeks and when I met Buck, and he's poking me in the chest. He said, uh, son, he said, I can tell by looking at you, you're as crazy as an outhouse rat. See, because <laughs> men in Alcoholics Anonymous didn't curse in those days. They were men of character. Right? They cleaned up their mouth. They, they believed what it says in the epistle of James about the unruly member being the tongue. And uh, he, But he poked me in the chest. He said, kid, you're as crazy as an out-of-house rat, but that's not your problem. He said, your problem's spiritual in nature. He said, if you try to solve your emotional problems, you'll chase your tail till you die of alcoholism. He said, but if you'll find a spiritual solution, your emotional problems will fall from you. And uh, I'm still as crazy as an outhouse rat, but I'm enjoying it a lot more now. And, um, but that's really true. And, and somehow we've gotten into thinking that our problems are emotional. And somehow if we can solve our emotional problems. The solution to the sober life is spiritual. And that's the solution that we seek. And we seek it through something called the fellowship. Uh, I had an experience... Uh, I, I was in New York City the day before 9-11, uh, and uh, I caught a plane out. And I remember flying into Newark. As you bank into the airport, you can look out and see the Twin Towers and the Statue of Liberty. And when I was leaving, um, I uh, looked. I was on the wrong side of the plane, and all I could see were those oil storage tanks. And uh, I thought, well, I'll see it the next time. And, uh, of course, there was no next time. And... Um, and so uh, the following Friday, I got the first flight out of Wilmington, North Carolina, where I was living at the time. And, uh, and I flew to Atlanta. And I got my, the first flight from Atlanta to Dallas-Fort Worth. Now, the plane was a little odiferous, as you might imagine, because people have been living in the airport since Tuesday without showers and things. And, uh, but the thing that was really amazing to me was every time we hit, hit any turbulence, people screamed. And, uh, you know, people were just absolutely on edge. And, uh, and I, I was invited down to speak at a, 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 a service get-together. Um, and they had it at the American Airlines uh, Training Center in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. And uh, I spent most of the time that weekend just talking to groups of these young people who worked for American Airlines because they had lost two flights. And... Um, they would be, just be sitting around weeping. And, uh, and it was my great pleasure to spend time with a number of them and to give them hope about the future. Because those of us who are in Alcoholics Anonymous, if we don't have hope, then we've missed the boat. And, you know, what we have, what gives us hope and what gives us strength is the fact that we are part of a fellowship. And I used to think fellowship meant you got together and drank coffee and played golf. I didn't understand what fellowship meant. But a wonderful woman from Texas who worked at the uh, office in New York read something out of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age. It's on page 276. And I'd like to read that to you. It's just a few paragraphs, so bear with me, please. It was written by Bernard Smith, who was the first chairman of the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous from 1951 to 1956. And on page 276, he said, I have frequently attempted to define the fellowship of AA with very little success. 
until one day while in England, I listened to a broadcast delivered by Canon C.E. Raven, a noted British religious leader. In the course of this broadcast, Canon Raven set forth the conditions of true fellowship in these words. Three conditions are necessary for true fellowship. The possession of a common ideal involving a complete release from selfishness and division. The discharge of a common task big enough to capture the imagination and give expression to loyalty. And the comradeship, the togetherness thus involved as we find out the joy and power of belonging to an organic society in engaging in whole time service. We can find it at its fullest extent, where the ideal is the highest and most exciting, where the task extends and integrates every ounce of our strength and every element of our being, where the comradeship is so solid and deep that we respond one to another without conscious effort, realizing the unspoken need, and react to it spontaneously and at once. Under such conditions... All the vitality that we usually waste upon our jealousies and our vanities, upon keeping up appearances and putting other people in their proper place becomes available for creative use. These words have meaning for AA. I believe not only as a definition of true fellowship and of our goals and attitudes, but as reminders that AA is not a static, passive, social organism, but it's largest sense, a dynamic creative force that releases our latent power to live and act constructively. You know, when um, I was scooped up early in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was sober five weeks when I went to my first institution. They took me to the Howard Pavilion for the criminally insane. And I said, well, what do I say? And they said, well, you don't have to say anything. Just take an extra pack of cigarettes. They always like a guy with an extra pack of cigarettes. And uh, they did. And... um, And I went into my first prison when I was sober six weeks, Lorton Reformatory, outside of Washington, D.C. And and, uh, we did two, three, 12-step calls a week, easily. And uh, so very early on, I was put into action in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know, when you're helping a man throw up, and you're holding him so he doesn't go face first into the toilet, It's really hard to think about yourself. It's hard not to be profoundly grateful for the great gift of the sobriety that I've been given that day. You know, I had violated virtually every principle associated with being a human being as a result of my alcoholism. And I thought that that somehow I would have to forget all of that. And, of course, I did, and we'll see tomorrow when we talk about the steps and about cleaning house, that we don't forget those things. We build our lives on those things. Those are the things that make the difference in our lives. And I found that, um, that being able to share those things with another human being make all the difference in the world. One other thing I'd like to talk about when it comes to fellowship is that fellowship is magnetic. You know, the big book says a day will come when no human power will keep us from taking a drink. And I was sober probably about four or five months when that day came for me. I knew it was time. And when I thought about it, what I was was overwhelmed with guilt, absolutely overwhelmed with guilt. And um, 
my home group met that night. It was a Thursday night, and my home group met, and uh, we had a, a step study on Thursday night and a speaker meeting on Sunday night. And uh, there was a man named Happy Harold, Harold B. from Washington, D.C., who led the meeting. And uh, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but my head was so busy, I couldn't hear anything that was being said. And um, so I'm, but I, I went to the meeting because I was attracted, and the magnetism of fellowship drew me to that meeting. And I sat through the meeting, and we always went to a place called the Potter's House on Columbia Road after the meeting. And I didn't go because I wanted to go. I went because we always went. There isn't a lot of that going on anymore where people go out for coffee after. You know, they, they get their problems solved in the meeting. They don't have to sit across the table and unload their soul to another human being. So I went just out of habit. I was sitting with some friends of mine, and I couldn't hear a thing they were saying. And finally, I got up to leave. And I was walking past this table, and Harold reached out and took my arm. And he looked at me. He's a wonderful man. He's a black man, and he's one of these people who's just so expressive. He just radiates love and caring. And uh, he said, son, you look troubled. And I said, uh, I really feel guilty about my children and everything. And he didn't say to me, you shouldn't feel that way. He said, I know exactly how you feel. And he pulled up a chair. He said, sit down. And he told me a story that changed my life. He said, you know, he said, my mama was dying in the intensive care unit. And I um, was, uh, she called me up and said, son, I want you to come and see me tomorrow morning. But don't be drinking because I don't want to go into eternity seeing my oldest boy drunk. And he said, I showed up at the hospital the next day, and I was drunk. I said, you were? He said, yes, I was. He said, I didn't know how not to be drunk. I hadn't met you people yet. And he said his brothers and sisters met him in the waiting room, and they said, Harold, you can't go up like that. You can't go see Mama like that. So they called up, and they took a phone into her bed. And he said, Mama, can I come and see you? She said, you drinking, boy? And he said, "Uh, yes, ma'am. And she said, I don't want to see you like that, son. And he said, while my brothers and sisters said goodbye to Mama, I sat in the waiting room and she died. And I said, how do you live with that? And he smiled, and Harold smiles with his whole body. He smiled and he said, you're going to discover the worst thing you do becomes your greatest gift. And I was so overwhelmed with Harold's story, I forgot to go home and die. And uh, a (laughs) couple months later, I'm in the hospital that I worked in, and I see Harold at the elevator, and I went over and we hugged and we talked for a couple minutes, and, uh, and he always patted my cheek. He patted me on the cheek, and he said, you hang in there, son, and I said, yes, sir, and he got on the elevator, and I turned around, and I almost bumped into a nurse standing there, and she said, do you know Mr. B? And I said, do you mean Happy Harold? And she said, yes. She said, he's the finest man I know. And I said, really? She said, yes. She said, you know, whenever... There's, we have an old person here who's dying, and they don't have anybody. We call Harold, and he comes and helps them die. And those words rang through my head. The worst you do becomes your greatest gift. And that's why we don't run from our lives. We don't run from our past. We clean it up. And then we use those broken bricks and those splintered boards and two-by-fours that constructed the old life. And we build a life that's totally different. One that God can use. And God can even use people like me. 
from time to time. And that's what this program is all about. It's all about the fact that we become usefully whole. Not to be admired, not to be praised, to be of maximum service to God and those about us. And that's what this weekend's all about. So we can discover the broken bricks and the splintered two before us, upon which we rebuild the life that God uses to affect other human beings. That's one of my favorite stories. Story. I cry too. When I came in, I was very confused. Uh, I was very confused, period. Uh, they didn't let me go talk to anybody. Uh, I had brain damage. (laughs) (laughs) You'll hear my story tonight, but there was no transitional drinking. I went right to alcoholic drinking. And so when I got here, I had uh, uh, a slight case of wet brain, and it took me about a year and a half to learn how to read again. So if you'd be having a conversation with me and you'd tell me something, ten minutes later, you'd tell me something and I'd get confused and I'd, ask you the same question. So people had to be very patient with me. But they gave me a job, my job, and I got sober in Louisville, Kentucky. I was the ashtray guy. And uh, in Louisville, Kentucky at that time, if you didn't smoke when you came into Alcoholics Anonymous, you had to learn how to smoke. It was mandatory <laughs> that you smoked. And we, and we had these uh, red and green and uh, gold metal ashtrays that had been designed by some fistus so that the ashes actually chemically fused with the ashtray (laughs) that was my job but I was hearing the kind of stories that Keith was telling I was hearing the old timers talk about the spiritual changes that take place and they took me, my retreats were at Gethsemane and every year we did they believed in an annual house cleaning and I still do an annual house cleaning with my sponsor Um, and we went to Gethsemane and this is where I heard stories I hadn't heard elsewhere because you don't always hear them in the meetings. Uh, and I heard these stories, and I saw these people, and I saw their actions in life. And, and that, that is my, it, it's what holds me there. It's what took the knots out of my stomach. It's what keeps me here. But I went through a period, and I want to talk about this. I went through a period where I was on a spiritual high because I had realized that there is a God. He loves me and that this world is all created out here. And I think everybody goes through that period. But that's not what this power that we talk about is about. In the big book on page 130, it says, Those of us who have spent much time in the world of spiritual make-believe have eventually seen the childlessness of it. This dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose, accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives. We have come to believe he would like us to keep our heads in the clouds with him, but that our feet ought to be firmly planted on earth. That is where our fellow travelers are, and that is where our work must be done. These are the realities for us. We have found nothing incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane and happy usefulness. And that really was, that. I I, I would go, I went through a period in the 60s where I uh, did some graduate work in uh, in philosophy and and in uh, Eastern religion and Western religions and intercultural studies, I would read Edgar Cayce books and put them under my pillow to see if I'd retain them. <laughs> That's an incident. 
I, that, but but that, that's where I was, and I was reading everybody from Khalil Gibran. I read everything I could. I studied everything I could, and my spiritual life was over here. But I couldn't explain that to my father coming down and crying and finding out after he'd sent another check for me to go to school why I'd flunked out and not told him. Um, and and he was his heart was broken because here was the son that he had all these hopes for. My real life never matched up with my spiritual life. It was make-believe until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and men, one at a time, by sharing with me at a retreat, would share their innermost secrets and these kind of stories and the kind of stories that Keith just told, and it made a, it made a tremendous difference in my life, and I think that's what we're here for this weekend. You know, when uh, uh, Buck Doyle helped me with another thing, too, he uh, pulled me aside one day, and uh, he said to me, he said, kid... He said, uh, you're a college boy. He said, um, I got a question for you. And I said, what's that, Buck? And he said, uh, the book says he has all power. How much do you have? And I thought for a minute, and I said, none. He said, you're a genius, kid. You're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> and there was another old timer, a guy named J- Jack Dennis, and uh, somebody suggested to me one time, and I'm sober about five or six weeks, they said, you're, a, you're deluded. And I, didn't know, I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that uh, it wasn't good. And um, <laughs> so I went to Jack, and Jack used to wear coveralls. He wore them before they were cool. And, um, and uh, he, he'd always hook his thumbs in his coveralls, and he said, and I said to him, I said, somebody said I was deluded. What's that mean? And he looked at me and smiled. He said, well, kid, he said, delusion ain't what you don't know. It's knowing things that just ain't so. (laughs) He said, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we call those old ideas. And I hearken back to uh, uh, a little bit later, I thought about it. And, uh, you know, I was a guy who I thought that getting well meant solving my problems. And... um, and so we had an old timer that, and the, the, there were a bunch, a group of us young people came in. We were all in our 20s. Back then, that was pretty young in AA. And uh, all nine of us are sober, coming up on 32 years. We hung together. We did work. We did all this stuff. And, uh, but uh, they used to send me to this old timer. If we had a question, they'd always send me to ask the questions, right? And I had a big problem. Like, uh, we were sort of like the problem of the month group. And... Um, and I had a big problem. It was called impotence, which will put a crimp in your sex life. And, um, and I made the mistake of going to this old-timer, and I said to him, I said, uh, I, I, I'm impotent. And he laughed, and um, they always laugh at your problems. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and then he said, um, he said, well, a lot of us had that problem, kid. He said, it'll get better. I said, when? I thought it was important. He said, what do you got, a full social calendar? Ha, 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 And um, I, was living, I was living on Skid Row at the time. He said, let me guess. He said, you're going to take her to dinner, and then you'll take her over to your place on Skid Row and show her your etchings. Ha, ha, ha. And um, so the, the, next, the next month, I go back to this guy, right, with another problem. So I'm telling him my problem, and he said, um, he said, are you ready to take some action? I said, yes, sir. And he said, because we take action in Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, look, he said, I want you to borrow a tube of lipstick from one of the girls. He said, I don't want you to do anything else with the girls. He said, oh, that's right, you can't. Ha, ha, ha. 
<laughs> he said, I want you to go home and write on a mirror, Keith, you are wrong. I said, well, I can't do that. You see, my problem is I have a poor self-image and I need to be affirmed. Uh, <laughs> those old guys never read any of those books. And... Um, <laughs> I didn't want to borrow, I didn't want to owe anything to, especially a woman, so I went and bought a tube of lipstick, and I went home and I wrote on a mirror, Keith, you were wrong, and I just knew these people were crazy, they're out of their minds, you know, and I threw the, you know, the tube, uh, the lipstick in a trash can, and I went in, and I laid down, it was a normal night, you know, the minute I laid down, my head woke up and took off, <laughs> you're never going to make it, they're going to find out you're crazy, you're going to be alone the rest of your life, what difference does it make your impotent, just on and on and on, and <laughs> And, and I, finally, I go to sleep, and then the leg cramps would set in. Remember the leg cramps? And I'd be jumping up and down beside the bed trying to get my legs uncramped. And 15 minutes before I had to go to work, I'd go sound asleep. And it'd take, take three alarm clocks to wake me up. And I'd, be, I'd get up, and I'd be so depressed. My mind's still working. You're going to go to work. They're going to find out you don't know how to do your job, and they're going to fire you. What difference does it make? You're hopelessly in debt. And I went out, and I didn't know whether to start the coffee or fall on a butcher knife. And... Um, <laughs> And I walked into this crummy little bathroom of mine, and I looked on a mirror. It said, Keith, you are wrong. I said, well, thank God. If I'm right, I'm in a lot of trouble. And, <laughs> and I came to realize that the more things I can be wrong about, the freer I'm going to be. You know, I started this journey in a little treatment center started by Ernie, the attorney. And, uh, and uh, he's a wonderful man. He's a marvelous man. And... Um, and when I left there, they gave me two posters. One of them had posters real big, real big back in the early 70s, if you remember. And they, most of them had big, dumb flowers on them. But uh, this one poster had two buzzards sitting on a branch overlooking the Grand Canyon. And one of them said, patience my butt. I'm going to kill something. And they said to me, that's your problem. You need patience. But the other one was a quote by the poet Emerson. It says, to grow is to change. To have changed often is to have grown much. And you know, the only thing that can save my life in Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual awakening so profound it alters my personality. And what that means is a lot of changes. And I was terrified of the concept of change. And uh, when we talk about the steps tomorrow, we're going to talk a little bit about fear. And one of the things that uh, we'll talk about is the fact what fear does to us. You know, fear, fears conflict one to another. I was a kid who was afraid of being alone, and I was afraid of commitment and intimacy. So the women in my life used to hear, I love you, it's none of your business. Come close, stay away. Uh, I was... Um, uh, afraid of failure. I grew up in poverty and I was terrified of failure. But I was also terrified of success. So whenever I started to get ahead, I'd shoot myself in the foot and start all over. And so to grow is to change. To have changed often is to have grown much. And so this whole concept of change is crucial to the life of a recovering alcoholic. You won't be the same man this time next year. You are this time this year if we live by the principles that we're taught and by the steps that we're taught in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous.
So accepting change is a big part of accept is a big part of surrender. Of course, I'm powerless over alcohol. And old Hal Marley used to say to me, "Kid, you don't have alcoholism. You have alcoholism." And uh, and I'm every bit as powerless over alcohol today as I was almost 32 years ago when I entered these rooms. Okay, but and I still have alcoholism, and I still must be in the process of change. It's so easy to start thinking after a while that we have all the answers. You know, and from time to time, I tack a little note up on my mirror. says, Keith, you are wrong. Because it's about change. And it takes tremendous courage to change. You may consider yourself a weak failure and on and on. But if you're staying sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're none of those things. Once we make a decision, that, like we'll make tonight, to turn our will and lives over to the care of God as we understand them, our will and our lives are no longer our business. We no longer have a right to criticize ourselves or to put ourselves down. What we do at the end of the day is we answer a few short questions on the first paragraph on page 86 in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Those are the questions we ask. But we no longer have a right to be critical of ourselves. Because we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to the God of our understanding. What Keith was talking about in terms of being able to learn from failure was something I could not and would not do before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And it defeated me almost every time. Because I wanted you to think well of me. And because of that, I was not willing to learn from my own mistakes, much less anybody else's. And how many people in here sponsor somebody? How many people have been fired by somebody they sponsor? Here's how I found out that I had no clue about how to be a good husband. I was sponsoring this guy. I've been, so, I've been sober for uh, 12 years. I've been married for four years. I'm helping him with his marriage. <laughs> I'm helping him to learn how to live in principle in a relationship. And he comes to me one day and he fires me. And I said, you know, I, I was shocked a little bit. He said, I need to get another sponsor. And he said, I need to let you go because I'm trying to deal with my own relationship. And frankly, sometimes the way I see you behave toward your wife uh, makes me feel uncomfortable. You're actually mean to her sometimes. Now, this is the kind of stuff that I didn't talk about. And I had gotten married, and my wife had gained just a little bit of weight. And she wasn't exactly who I thought I was. And so I started having some resentments towards her, and it came out in the way I treated her. I didn't know the purpose of that relationship, and we'll talk about this on Sunday when we get into the traditions. But I had no purpose for that relationship, and if the purpose for your relationship is for that other person to make you feel good, that's not exactly going to be the same purpose she's got in the relationship. There has to be a common purpose. And the traditions eventually taught me and brought me to the point where the purpose of our relationship now, my wife and I, who have been happily married for 21 years, is for us to create a safe harbor based on our trust of God so that we are partners together and can help each other through this life and support each other so that I help her to become a better woman and she helps me to become a a better man. And both of us believe that we're here to do God's work. That's a relationship. And she's a good-looking babe. 
you know, that's uh, that's doesn't hurt. And that's why I was attracted to her in the first place. And when I share how I met her uh, tonight during the talk, you'll see that God brought us together. But I had no clue how to be a husband. The first time I heard anything about this was at a men's retreat like this where I heard a guy openly and honestly share. It was a smaller group, and it was at Gethsemane. Share about how he was a failure as a husband. And we all thought he was doing fine. I should have listened then, but I didn't learn from his mistake. I had to wait until I got slapped in the face. And that wasn't the first time I got fired. But each time I got fired, there was a great deal of freedom in my failure because I found out if I will stop now and admit I don't know how to do this and learn how I can be a husband, learn how I can deal with my finances, learn how I can be honest with people without embellishing everything, I'm the one who gains. And that's a tremendous freedom, a tremendous freedom. We learn a great deal from failure, and we learn a great deal from the things I was afraid of. We're going to talk about the third step in a minute, and it says, this is something we read a lot of in page 63, and we'll read the whole thing before we take the third step, but it says, as we felt new power flow in, having taken the third step, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. That means I've been given a new life in this program, a new opportunity. Three years ago, I went in for a, a kidney stone, and I had a kidney stone, and they treated the kidney stone, and I got worse, and they did another operation on the kidney. And I got worse and worse. And I was supposed to be speaking down at the Brazos River Roundup. And I'm on the phone with Keith and uh, thinking I'm going to get up any minute and I'm going to go on down there. And it turned out I also had a ruptured appendix the same day I had a kidney stone. And they let me sit for seven days with peritonitis. And usually you die from it within two days. Finally, when I had a fever of 105 degrees, three strokes, and uh, uh, my liver started to fail, my heart started to fail, and they told my wife to call the family in to say goodbye we realized I had a problem, and they wheeled me in. On that day, when I held my wife's hand as they were taking me into the operating room, having already told her right in front of me that they didn't think I would make it, I was not afraid. I had lost my fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. My original sponsor was a railroad man named Jack Sullivan in Louisville, Kentucky. And I had talked to Jack the day that he walked out of a doctor's office and had been told he had six malignant tumors in his brain. And I said, well, what are they going to do? And he said, they're not going to do anything. And he had no fear. And he told me, if God has been that good to me here and given me all that he's given me, just imagine what he's got in mind for me at the next place. You know, uh, Dick was talking about relationships. I'm always reminded of... uh, how difficult it is to form meaningful, lasting relationships. It says in the book that's one of our major problems. And you know, I uh, married, it'll be 16 years ago uh, this May, a week after I get to celebrate my 32nd AA birthday, I get to celebrate my 16th wedding anniversary. And my wife, Julia, and I did a uh, retreat out in Santa Fe. I think you have those tapes here. And, uh, and she's a funny lady. She's uh, spent 25 years in law enforcement. And she was talking to the people about, uh, uh, first she said that every woman has a dream 
of a white picket fence, a house with a white picket fence. And during the break, this little lady came up and said, no, 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 a brown adobe wall. And um, <laughs> so then we were talking, and she was talking about what attracts people to one another. And she said, I think what attracted Keith to me was I'm the first woman he ever met who had her own handcuffs. <laughs> She's a, a very funny lady. And, um, and, you know, I was very much in love with her. And uh, we were married a month, and she did something that's absolutely unforgivable. I walked in the kitchen one day. This is going to be hard to believe. You'll wonder why we're still married. But I walked into the kitchen one day, and she's putting my good Chicago cutlery knives in a dishwasher. Yeah. And I said to her, I said, uh, don't put those in a dishwasher. I said, it'll ruin the handles. And she said, um, she said, honey, I was cutting chicken, and I don't want you to get salmonella poisoning. So being a big guy I am, I let it go. Because, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty big guy. And uh, so I walk in a week later. She's doing the same thing, and I lost it. And I began to raise my voice. And I stopped. And I said, uh, I love you more than anything in the world, and I'm about to scream at you. I said, the 10-step axiom says, if there's a problem between me and you, I have a problem. I said, I'm going to go call Tom and find out what my problem is. She said, I'm going to go call Eleanor and find out what my problem is. And I discovered my problem. She was defying me. She was defying my authority. And right after they defy you, they leave you. And, uh, and I discovered that uh, I was making rules by which people in my life had to live because I was filled with fear. And if they didn't live by the rules I had made, then something terrible had to happen. So I told that story on this retreat. And the same lady who preferred a brown adobe wall to... Um, to a white picket fence came up and said to me, you know, if you soak those in olive oil, it'll restore the handle. And uh, so you always get your answers in AA. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I, I thought it over, you know. Uh, you know, on the one hand, I could hurt someone I love more than life itself. Or 25 years from now, I could buy a new knife. And, you know, there's a bonus to every surrender. There's a bonus to absolutely every surrender, okay? Uh, and the bonus to that surrender was that uh, we have not had one case of salmonella poisoning in our house. <laughs> so, you know, this whole business of surrender is an ongoing process. And uh, I, uh, when I moved to Ocala, I began to sponsor two men who were sober around 10 years, and they said, what do we do? I said, the first thing we do is we do the steps again. There are difficult times in recovery. At least I found this to be true. A year and a half, it's easy to begin to drift away from Alcoholics Anonymous. And we usually use an excuse. Like the excuse I used was, uh, well, uh, I owe amends to the university, so I'm going to work extra hard. And so I began to miss meetings. It was the first time I'd done it. And uh, fortunately, I got back. And, uh, but uh, three years I found to be a very, very difficult and challenging time. Six years is when I had a profound spiritual awakening. Ten to twelve years, difficult time. Twenty years, thirty-two years. 
There are times, I believe, when we're called on to surrender some more. You know, Clarence Snyder, whose story they left out of the fourth edition of the big book, which breaks my heart, but, uh, <laughs> but Clarence uh, was one of the you know, early members that I, I got to know. And um, he used to say, you only take the 12 steps one time. And everybody would freak out, you know. And then he'd smile and he'd say, but you take at them for years. And that's the truth. You know, we take it these steps and we take it these steps and we take it these steps. And we surrender and we surrender and we surrender. I'm called on to surrender at a deeper level every day that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what that means is I learn where I'm wrong and I make changes in my life. So... um, you know, if you're coming up on one of those crucial times, or if your life isn't going exactly the way you think it ought to be going, it might be time to surrender a little bit deeper. It might be time to give up or give over to the God of your understanding a little bit more of your life. Would you like to lead us in a third step prayer, Dick? I'm going to read what it says right before this because um, there's a principle in the big book. Um, that is absolutely constant. The, the beauty of this book is, is that, that the longer I'm sober, I, I've never been able to find fault with it. Not at all. In its principle, in the way it works, and in its very practical use. But provision always follows purpose. When we sincerely took such a position, meaning the third step, all sorts of remarkable things followed. Also it says, follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently walk in a new and wonderful world. At every point where we get provision, where our needs are taken care of, where we're given enlightenment, where we're given power, where we're given strength. It is because we have just surrendered to the purpose in this book. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. We were now at step three. And I know some of you know this, and if, if you don't, let's just pray together. If I may, uh, AA is tricky. Um, Sandy B. was my sponsor for many years, and uh, Sandy uh, told me, he said, he said, work in his steps is like a, uh, an upside, he said, like a megaphone. He said, the second step, it says, the hoop is so big, anybody can fit through it. He said, then when you get down to the 11th step, it says, God's will, period. And you say, wait a minute. How about the hoops big enough any of us can jump through? Well, they do the same thing with the third step prayer. After the third step prayer, they say, we thought well before taking this step. (laughs) But we at last utterly abandon ourselves to him, you know. I remember the first time I read it, I thought, that's pretty tricky. (laughs) God. God, I offer offer myself myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self 
that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help, thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And I believe that that, that step, having taken and I believe I took that as thoroughly as I could the day that I got to Alcoholics Anonymous through my actions, because I haven't had a desire for a drink since that day. But I've repeated it many, many times. And I believe that that step for this weekend is going to lead us to uh, some new power, to some healing. I don't, know what, I don't know what you need, but God does. And whatever you need, the answer is here this weekend. With that, would you like to... You know, there, uh, uh, the, the door in Alcoholics Anonymous does swing both ways. I've heard that saying many times. And uh, many people come and go and then come back, fortunately. And I believe, you know, people always say, I can't get the first step. Um, I believe that we're, I know what did it for me was the second step. I didn't believe there was anything that could help me but me. And I have a degree in theology as well as philosophy and some other things. But, uh, but the best theology lesson I ever got, I got from an old-timer in Alcoholics Anonymous who told me the only thing I needed to know about God is I ain't it. And, uh, you know, whenever I'm in difficulty in life, I go back to the second step. I believe there's a power greater than me that can restore me to sanity. I don't generate that power. I can tap into that power. And the first time I tapped into that power was I was willing to give my life over to a human being who knew how to stay sober one day at a time. And I practiced faith by doing precisely what he told me to do. I followed my sponsor's directions. And that was the first tangible proof that I believed something outside of me could do for me what clearly I could not do for myself. You know, uh, Bill Wilson took the manuscript of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and showed it to a psychiatrist at a hospital. And the psychiatrist read it, and he said, this is very good, but this is not what you guys do. And Bill said, what do you mean? And he said, you don't talk to people this way. You don't give them orders. You tell them what you did, and you invite them in to the way you live your life. And that's what sponsorship is all about. In the second step, I sort of picture the second step as, you know, there was a time when I was standing on a limb of a tree and I had my arms wrapped around the trunk of the tree. And the second step is a step that invites me further and further and further out on the limb. And I believe that's what life's about. I think it's about getting further out on the limb. It's about taking risks and chances and overcoming fears that dictated the terms of my life, most of my life. And uh, every once in a while, I'll be so far out on a limb, I'll say, are you sure you got the right guy? You know, and then I go back to the second step, and I don't have to run back and grab a hold of the trunk of the tree. I would go back to the second step, and I talk to friends uh, and sponsor, and I reconfirm the fact 
that God has a task for me to do. And once I turn my will and my life over to his care, my will and my life is no longer any of my business. And how Marley explained it to me as well as I've ever heard it explained. He said to me, I said, uh, tell me about your relationship with God. And he said, well, he said, we have a partnership. He said, God's a senior partner. I'm the junior partner. He said, God's in charge of long-term planning. But he lets me get involved in day-to-day operations. He said, anytime during the course of the day, if I question what I'm doing, I can call my senior partner and say, is this part of the long-term plan? And he said, that way, you know, my senior partner dictates the long-term plan, and I can check with him on a minute-to-minute basis to find out if the behavior or the actions I'm taking fit in with his long-term plan. So if there are people here who have had problems slipping and that sort of thing, please focus on the second step. Please believe that there's a power that can change us. There's a power that can restore us to sanity. And sanity is, is absence of fear and it's peace of mind. Sanity is coming to recognize that God can use us to do his work and to help those about us. I can't believe there can be a greater calling in life than to do God's work. I can't believe that. Thank you. We'll see you back here when? At 7? Here comes Chief, Chief Dan. <laughs>